John 18, verse 36 reads, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Hello again. Welcome to Think This Way. I'm an elder of Faith Bible Church, Bryce Beal, and who do I have with me today? My name is Dan Gelock, and I also have the privilege and honor of serving at Faith Bible Church as an elder. Dan has been a genuine mentor, very helpful in my own spiritual life and in many, many people, and I'm glad that he's here today, especially because today we are talking about another controversial subject, and this is the Bible and politics This might be a longer podcast because we have a lot of notes in front of us right now. So we're going to see how this goes. We did want to talk about this because it's been, again, something on everyone's mind. And we are thinking about it and talking about it. So what we're wanting to do and think this way is say, how would God have us to think about this? We've prayed about this. We're asking for wisdom. We'll be looking at the Bible. These aren't merely human opinions. And I hope you all pray for us too in this. So to begin with the Bible and politics, the question that we want to ask and answer today, and this is really the only question, there are other um, streams of thought that we'll bring in, but this is the one question. Should you, as a Christian, be political? In order to answer that question, and everyone probably has some knee-jerk reaction to it that they're already feeling, (laughs) but if you can put that aside for a second... In order to answer that question well, we need to start by doing something that you should always do in any controversial discussion or thought you ever have, and that is define your terms. So we need to define the term political. What does political mean? We could say rightly that every person in this country is or should be involved in politics. Every Christian and really every person in the U.S. should be impacting Politics, and Dan is going to define politics for us here in a second, but we should be involved in it. We're in a democratic republic. We can be involved in it in ways that people in the past and others today can't be. And so we don't want to use the word political just to mean involved in politics. The reason is because if we use it to mean that, then it means nothing. (laughs) Because everyone is political in that sense. So it loses any of its force. So we're not going to say that political means involved in politics or impacting politics. Dan, would you mind to give us, I know that you've looked into and are aware of some of the history of this word, its etymology and where it comes from and its Greco uh, background and context. Would you give us some of that as we continue trying to define political here? Sure, my pleasure. From the Greek, politica, affairs of the cities is literally what it means. It was documented by Aristotle in the 4th century, but reflected the attitude of the Greco-Roman society, where people were concerned, they had deliberation, activities, and thought concerning the benefit for society and the citizenry. In medieval usage, the adjective politic connoted that which was prudent, sensible, and sagacious, wise. The political, as a realm of public speech, was imagined as elevated and righteous, and often contrasted the perceived benefits of constitutional governments against the characteristics 
of despotism or tyranny. For some times in the 16th century, another set of meetings came to be attached to the term. Against its more elevated connotations, political came to mean cunning or temporizing and dealing with only temporal issues. Well, the positive connotation lingered even through the 18th century when David Hume, in a treatise of human nature, described the security and protection which we enjoy in a political society. But today, the political sphere may more readily be imagined as contaminating the common man rather than the other way around in a benefit. Thank you, Dan. That's important to have that background, even if not all of us are aware of all of that, because it indicates there are different ways to understand the word political. So some people are going to use the word like Dan said, originally it had a positive connotation, but then over time, 16th, 1700s, you have it developing a negative connotation, partly because people involved in politics are dealing with power and our innate corruption becomes clearer when they're, given power. They're people. <laughs> they're people. That's the problem. <laughs> Once we're ruled by AI, then everything will be fixed. No. Of course. <laughs> okay, maybe not, maybe not. But that's true. So... How are we then, in light of the different ways this word has been used in history and is used today, how are we going to use the word political? Because again, our main point is that you as a Christian, we don't think you should be political, but we mean political in a very specific way. Here's how we're going to define it. Someone or something with the primary purpose of changing public policy. Let's do some clarifications here so that this isn't misunderstood. Like we said before, everyone has should have, in this country, a purpose of changing public policy. I think that's a part of loving your neighbor in a democratic republic. So I think it should be all of our purpose, one of our purposes for all of us, to change public policy to policies we think will be the most beneficial to our neighbors. And we are a part of that process in a democracy like this. We vote, we can advocate, and so forth. So, we all do that. But the way we're using this term political is to say someone not with a purpose of changing public policy, that's all of us, but someone whose, quote, primary purpose. Or maybe we could put it up there at the top three purposes of their life or something. But I'm going to just say their primary purpose. So, political people and things, something we'd say, oh yeah, that guy's political. All right. They also have other purposes in life, maybe even very good purposes, but we're saying that this is their primary purpose. Another clarification, the word political, in the way many people use it, is not inherently negative. If we use the word political... Uh, to talk about certain subjects, like a thing instead of a person, let's say abortion. Is abortion political? We would say somewhat, because those who talk about it today usually are aiming at changing public policy. There's other factors to it. So here's, here's the main point with our definition, the word primary. And we'll focus on a person. So if, if you say that person is political, I think the person on the street you say, yeah, that person's so political. What are you saying? You're not saying they vote in a democracy. You're saying it's one of their highest or primary purposes in life to change public policy. It's what's 
on all of their Facebook posts. It's fine if that's on some of your face, but it's all the Facebook posts. It's all the conversations. It's what they think about. They wake up, they go to sleep. All the conversations turn to this because it's primary. It's high up there. So to complement what you're saying, in the Decalogue, we have the two-point focus of all of us. Jesus dealt with this many times when he was asked the question, you know, what are the most important things? And he referred to that. The first part of the law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, body, strength. And then the second one is to love your neighbor as yourself. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, which was an interesting society in itself, 2 Corinthians 5.9 says, we have as our goal or our ambition to be pleasing to him. Paul further on goes on to describe where our citizenship is. So, to echo exactly what you've said, Bryce, here we have as our desire and our goal a reflection of the Westminster Confession of Faith, to be focused on Christ, his kingdom. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to be focused on God, the things of God, and to reflect his nature, his character to others. And so that is our primary purpose. There are secondary purposes that work out the second part of the law. That's very well said. And, you know, Dan, that is a good time to say that too, because that answers our question that we're now shifting to, which is based on our definition of political, someone whose primary purpose is to change public policy, should you as a Christian be political in that way? Meaning, should changing public policy be the primary aim of your life or one of the highest aims of your whole life? And you, quoting the Westminster, which I appreciate that, the Westminster is contradicting that. The Westminster is agreeing with us here that the chief end, and chief means primary, so the primary end, end means purpose, so the primary purpose of man is not to change public policy. That can be a purpose, but it's not the primary one. It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So there's, if you've read the Westminster, you don't have to listen to this because we're saying the same thing. That's it. That's all we're saying. I know it sounds controversial, but that's what we're trying to emphasize. You should not be political if political means changing public policy is your primary or near primary aim in your life. Do we have scripture that backs up what we're arguing here? I think that we do. The first one that comes to mind is the one that we quoted at the beginning of this podcast, John 18.36. Jesus is talking with Pilate. Jesus lives in, in the Roman Empire under their rule. Pilate is a governor of the Romans. And Jesus says to Pilate, who's wondering, is this some kind of king trying to overthrow Caesar? or at least break away from Caesar's rule. And Jesus' reply to him is, I am a king, but, quote, my kingdom is not of this world. And if my kingdom were of this world, if Jesus' primary aim was to change the public policy of Rome, then his servants would have been fighting. So he wouldn't be delivered over to the Jews and killed. But, he says, my kingdom is not from this world. Does Jesus care about... America today having just laws? Absolutely, yes, he does. He's not ignoring that. He's not off in a conclave ignoring laws. He cares about justice. That's an attribute of God, his love for justice and righteousness. 
does Jesus care about America today having just laws more than he cares about the holiness and faithfulness of his people, even if they're persecuted at some point, the advance of his gospel, the adornment of the truth? So we're not saying are either of those important. They're all important. We're saying in terms of priorities, what's most important to Jesus? And it is not the changing of public policies. We should aim at that. I have to say that because I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm only asking what's most important. So this is like what Jesus says in Matthew 6.33. You can't serve two masters. You only serve one master. So you seek first something. And we're saying don't seek first the changing of public policy. Seek it. By all means, seek it. But not first. Part of the reason for this, I would just want to list a few of the dangers in our experience of what can happen if our desire to change public policy, even a good desire to change public policy, becomes primary, becomes an overriding emphasis of our life. A few of the dangers would be, number one, I think selfishness can thrive in that atmosphere. It doesn't have to, but I think it's really hard to resist because at the end of the day, there's an element of our changing of public policy that comes from good motives, especially if we're believers, of course, wanting what's best for society. But we have to admit that the changing of public policy, we also know impacts us very closely, impacts us financially, impacts our well-being, impacts our safety. These things matter. When we make these things the overriding concern that we have, it's so easy for selfishness to begin to flourish, even in very subtle ways where we may be arguing for changes in public policy, which may even be good, but they're coming out of a selfish desire. Part of the reason we know this to be the case is think of the large numbers of unbelievers who right now I can say there is a massive group of unbelievers in our country who share most of the political views that I do, and I'm glad they do, but they're not believers. They don't love Christ. They don't read his word. So why do they share my views? I think some is common grace, and some is because it's beneficial to them. So selfishness is a danger. Pragmatism becomes another danger if we're political in the sense of primary focus on changing public policy, because that would mean our seeking of God's kingdom and his righteousness would have to come underneath as a secondary, tertiary, somewhere down the line, And if we're seeking God's righteousness as second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth place, and the changing of public policy in first place, we will be willing to compromise morally in order to do it. Defeatism is another danger if you're political in the way we've defined it, because if that's what your life is about, changing public policy, and you don't succeed, you will feel your entire life a failure. Confusion. When politics in this sense becomes so loud a drumbeat in our lives, it can confuse not only us, but even lost people around us who are looking at us as examples of Christ and Christianity and are hearing mainly just politics from us. And that, at the very least, that will be confusing for people. So that is the summary of what we're trying to say Don't be political if political means your whole life is about changing public policy or your primary aim is to do so. 
But like we've been saying, we're not saying don't impact or be involved in politics. In fact, one question we want to address right now is, and I'm going to throw this over to Dan, what if you have a Christian who has the right priorities, seeking first God's kingdom and righteousness, and they feel called by God to become involved in politics more closely by becoming even a politician, a local or federal senator, or in the House, or something else? How can a Christian do that without blurring allegiances by having the same priorities? What do you think, Dan? Well, first, I believe that it's important to note that some of God's people have been involved in the political sphere, the governmental sphere, throughout history and without compromise. Now, some have been dragged into it reluctantly, some by surprise, others by planning, prayer, and conviction. One of the things that John MacArthur is always very strong on is that he goes to the scriptures first for illustrations. And I think we can do that and see some wonderful examples of what we're talking about here. For example, Abram. In Genesis 14, the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and three other kings were routed. And so what did Abram do? Well, he gathered 318 of his men. I don't know how many of us can do that. And went out and recaptured Lot and other citizens of Sodom. Shortly thereafter, the king of Sodom approached Abraham or Abram with a request that his people be returned. And he was also interested in rewarding Abram. But Abram would not affiliate himself with the king of Sodom and his riches. So he was willing to do the right thing, but he was unwilling to get involved in a political and a societal structure of Sodom. Joseph worked as the number two man in Egypt, and he served with distinction, honor, and integrity within that political realm. Moses, raised within the government of Egypt, was called of God to confront the system and provide deliverance for his people. Later on, Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 29, verse 7, the prophet encourages God's people to live and pray for the benefit of their city and thus themselves. Jeremiah 29, verse 7 says, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. So there are some who will pray, they will build homes, they will buy and sell, but they're engaged in the society in which they are. Obadiah was the chief of staff in King Ahab's palace. Now, Ahab is infamous even today as the most wicked of Israel's kings. Ahab's queen, the infamous Jezebel, ordered the prophets of the Lord to be killed. But Obadiah had advance word and the means to circumvent this order He hides a hundred prophets in two caves, in case one is found, the others are saved, provides them bread and water until the crisis abates. They are saved only because someone who revered the Lord greatly is in a position of authority to protect them. And so even though he's within a wicked political system, he is working with integrity. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, all served in a political arena of Babylon without defilement, and they were able to influence decisions and policies and famously retaining their integrity. And our Lord Jesus willingly submitted himself to the governing authorities for the sake of our redemption, all the while recognizing the source of all governmental power. In John 19.11, Jesus answered, 
Pilate and said, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greatest sin. And of course, the Apostle Paul was well aware of the involvement in society as citizens, evidenced by so many recordings in the book of Acts, where we learn something more about Paul and his view of government and the political realm. He repeatedly displayed a strong insistence that his legal rights as a citizen be recognized and respected. He objected to government usurpations and violations of those rights. So Paul was politically astute. He was aware of his rights and was not afraid to refer to them, all the while trusting, like the three boys in the fiery furnace, that even if he suffered, he was still going to trust God. Acts 25. Paul was a prisoner in Judea. If he was guilty of violating the law, he was willing to suffer the consequence, which at that time could have meant death. But secondarily, he also appealed to Caesar. And then Romans 13. And everybody's familiar, especially in the last couple of years, with Romans 13. And Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote that we are to submit to legitimate government authority. It exists for our benefit by maintaining order and protecting the innocent. We follow the law, not simply because we don't want to suffer punishment, but because it's the right thing to do and God calls us to that. And then, of course, I, I would be remiss in my remarks if I did not refer to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1, where Paul, writing to Timothy, in the midst of a political structure that would have God's people being used as torches in gardens and as entertainment being mauled by beasts, Paul says that entreaties and prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men and all who are in authority. And what's the purpose? So that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness, because that's our goal, that's our ambition, and dignity. But the end of that section, right in verse 3 and 4, we do this because God desires all to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Well said, Dan. And I'm glad you bring up Paul, too, because we're in Philippians, and we're going to get to where he says that false teachers that he's going to talk about in Philippians set their minds on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. That was definitely Paul's attitude, even though he knew his rights as a Roman. <laughs> instance you bring up where he surprises these people who are going to torture him. He knows his rights. He's willing to use them, to appeal to them, to appeal to Caesar. But it's so clear with Paul. If someone was looking at Paul in his day and they said, what do you know about this guy? I don't think anyone who knew Paul would, the first thing out of their mouth would be, oh, he's very political. <laughs> Be, he's very focused on the kingdom of heaven, and he's aware of politics. He's not ignorant of it. And these Old Testament examples are so good, which here's a shameless plug. If you are not at Sunday school and you come to Faith Bible, just do it. You know, just just come. It's 9 a.m., and Dan's actually teaching this week, and he's teaching the later history. So it's going to be First, Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. And these are like the examples you've given. God's people, it was a different time. It's true, but... It's God's people, and some of them in exile in different governments. So it'd be like Christians today involved in government. It's not, you know, we're citizens somewhere else, but we're involved, and you can do that in a godly way. So come to Sunday school and hear that. You know, in, oh yeah, go ahead, Dan. Well, I thank you for that word from our sponsor. <laughs> 
and I do heartily encourage it, not because I'm speaking, but because there are much better speakers, and we're covering the whole of the counsel of God, all of the books of the Bible, and we're doing that not just for our intellectual knowledge, but because the goal of our instruction is love from a pure faith and an undefiled conscience that we may represent a living God in the world. Now, to the other point, which is Christians today being involved in politics. There are a wide variety of individuals who are called by God to work in a political arena today. It is important to say that the free exercise of religion in the United States certainly has been a historical reality in America. The American Revolution itself was fueled by fervor set off by the Great Awakening. Religious organizations and persons were deeply involved in abolition, prohibition, and the Civil Rights Act of 64. They have been active and influential in many public issues in the nation's history and continue to impact policy, like apartheid or abortion restraints. Well, that being said, the Church, especially the Church from the Reformed and Protestant traditions, recognizes that it is given the persuasive power of the Word and the Spirit, but not the coercive power of the sword. Practically speaking, those separatists who fear a theocracy overtaking the court, excuse me, the country, are overstating the threat they perceive. Now, the other type of separatism is one which sees an inherent potential danger that political involvement has for authentic religion. Well, that form of isolationism among the American church was more prevalent prior to the 1970s and the rise of what's called the religious right, also referred to as the moral majority. But since that time, there has been a rise in those naming the name of Christ who are willing to participate in government and thus politics. It is not wrong. Indeed, it is right and necessary that we Christian citizens of the United States focus and vocalize that our constitutional rights be recognized, respected, and that any and all infringements and usurpations be removed forthwith. That's good. And you know, someone may think, okay, this is a nice Pollyanna idea that someone could have politics not as the main defining feature of them changing public policy and yet be involved as a senator or involved very directly. Um, that's a great, that's a great ideal but is that realistic? I want to conclude our time here by just offering one example, among others, of someone who did that in real life. Most people know of William Wilberforce, and most people know that politically, William Wilberforce was used of God to abolish slavery in England. And the reason I want to bring his example up is because he lived a life tirelessly devoted in Parliament from the time he was a young man, 21 I think, to fighting this fight and eventually succeeding, not only abolishing slavery, but the very slave trade, slave trade and slavery over the course of his life. He wrote one book, today known as Real Christianity, and it was intended to help his cause of abolishing slavery and other things politically. But if you read that book, and I'm reading it right now, Real Christianity, it's not about politics. <laughs> it is about genuine Christian commitment, holy living, fighting against nominalism, everything that a Christian should be passionate about. 
but he believed that this moral transformation of society was one necessary component of changing public policy. So William Wilberforce, you say, is he political? I would say no. I'd say he was impacting politics amazingly. He was involved in politics, but he saw his involvement as a calling from God. John Newton actually is the one who encouraged him, no, stay with politics after he came to Christ. Be involved. You can do that. It's not your highest aim in life. Your highest aim is to please Christ. So you can go look at William Wilberforce. There are other examples, but we don't have time to go into them. I would I would highly recommend it. You have not seen the movie Amazing Grace. Do that. You know, the fact that Wilberforce had such a tremendous influence, not only in the destruction of the slave trade in the United Kingdom, but it bled over into the United States is a reflection of how a Christian with the right priorities can have a wonderful impact upon all of history, even outside of their own geographic location. Well said. So this is a crazy time politically, and therefore this is important to remember. Your main goal, Christian, is not the changing of public policy, but let it be one of your goals in the loving of your neighbor. But may your main goal be to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It's hard to do with all the noise around us, but may God help us to think this way. Thank you.